This podcast was supported by Grant 2016 MUMUK001, awarded by the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Department of Justice. Welcome, everyone, to the Reflections on Research podcast. I'm your host, Mike Geringer, Director of Research and Evaluation at Mentor, the National Mentoring Partnership. Just a reminder that this episode is brought to you as part of our work on the National Mentoring Resource Center, or the NMRC, and we're the nation's leading source of training and technical assistance for youth mentoring programs. The center is sponsored through a cooperative agreement with the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, or OJJDP, and they have a long history of investing in youth mentoring research and and mentoring programming, uh, including much of the great research we'll be talking about today, actually. So we certainly thank them for their generous support of both cutting-edge research and projects like the NMRC that allow that research to reach a wider audience. If this is your first time listening to an episode of Reflections on Research, please note that you can always find new episodes of the series on the NMRC website at nationalmentoringresourcecenter.org or .org. And you can always get the scoop on this podcast and other work that the center is doing by subscribing to our monthly e-newsletter. And that's easy to do right there on the homepage of the website. I'm really excited to dive into today's topic, which I think gets at the heart of a big reason behind the investment that the you know federal government and government agencies at the state, county, even municipal levels make in youth mentoring programs. And that is the hope that these programs will reduce juvenile delinquency and youth's involvement in the juvenile justice system, perhaps especially for those youth who have already been in the system at some level. We're very lucky today to have a guest with us who knows an awful lot about the justice and correctional systems kind of across the board and interventions operating in that space, including mentoring. So I'm very excited to discuss kind of what we know about the potential and the reality of mentoring as a strategy to prevent recidivism and really help young people reduce their you know journey into uh, and back out of the juvenile justice system. So I'm really happy to have our guest with us today. It brings a lot of expertise. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest. And that is Dr. Edward Latessa, and Ed is the Director and Professor of the School of Criminal Justice at the University of Cincinnati. He has published over 170 works in the area of criminal justice, corrections, and juvenile justice. He is also the co-author of eight books, including What Works and What Doesn't in Reducing Recidivism, Corrections in the Community, and Corrections in America. So a lot of expertise coming from Ed today. Uh, especially relevant to our talk here, uh, he has directed over 195 funded research projects, including studies of day reporting centers, juvenile justice programming, drug courts, prison programs, intensive supervision programs, halfway houses, and drug programs. So, you know, once again, really deep expertise on this topic. He and his staff have also assessed over 1,000 correctional programs throughout the United States, and he has provided uh, kind of technical assistance and workshops in 48 states across America. So welcome, Dr. Latessa. 
Okay, yeah, I'm happy to do it. Thanks for having me, Mike. I want to start out by giving our audience a chance to learn a bit more about your work in general. Yours is a name that I have not come across before in the mentoring literature, and most of your work has been in kind of criminal justice and corrections and, and other kind of related fields. So can you maybe tell our audience a little bit about the types of interventions you like to study and what drew you to the Youth Mentoring Research Project through OJJDP that we're going to be talking about today? My work has evolved over the years. I've always, most of my research certainly has always been involved in evaluating programs. But, you know, early on in my career, you know, most of the concern was around whether or not a program was effective or not. So, you know, if you started a, a program for juveniles or if you had a halfway house, you know, I would often be the one to come in and, and help create a design and evaluate it uh, to see whether or not the program was getting its intended effect. But about, oh, I'd say about 25 years ago, ago or so, I was involved in a study of day reporting centers. And one of the questions that the, that the state wanted us to try and explain was why, why one program might be more effective than another. Right. And, and, and so, you know, if you think about this, whether it's mentoring or a, a, a drug court or or any type of program. Right. We create these programs and we we tend to stamp them out. So we'll have one in, you know, in, in one state and it'll be another state and so forth. And, and oftentimes, if you look at research, you find it you'll find one that's showing some effects. You'll find another that is not very effective. And, and, and so. I got interested in that question of basically what are the characteristics of an effective program, right? And and of course, if you start thinking about that, and you know, if I asked you to tell me what you would need to design an effective program, any type, you would probably tell me you need a good staff, you need leadership, you need a program model, you need some indicators of fidelity, and so forth, and. Of course, the challenge was how do you measure that, um, and and we came up with tools to do that. But but at the end of the day, it's really, you know, what's the difference between a program that that works and one that doesn't? And, and the same is true, of course, for for you know, if you think about youth and and risk assessment and so forth. Uh, I I started to get into risk assessment probably 30 years ago, and the same kind of question: Why are some kids successful? And others aren't, and and of course we know that that they come with different risk factors, right? So one one youth might come with a, a history of drug use, uh, or he might come with a a lot of family uh, turmoil, uh, or he might hang around with kids that are also getting into trouble. Those kind of things can increase or decrease their chances of. Of failing, and and so I, I I started to get into the whole uh, risk assessment world. We created at the university. We have an institute, uh, the University of Cincinnati Corrections Institute, and our mission is to research and develop and disseminate evidence-based practices. And of course, if you're going to do that, you have to kind of have to study them and know what evidence-based practices are. And so. A lot of my work recently is focused on developing um, models and curriculum based on 
kind of social learning, uh, cognitive behavioral approaches. I now do a lot of, we do a lot of uh, redesign of programs. We'll go into a a juvenile facility. We're doing some work in in California, helping them redesign some of their juvenile halls and and bring evidence-based programming. You ask what kind of drew me to the mentoring project. I think historically, most of my work focused on programs, um, evaluating them, designing them, proving them. But recently, I've really become more interested in developing interventions that anyone can use to help justice-involved individuals. You know, if you think about your own life, my guess is you're where you're at because you had people in your life that cared about you, that helped you, that kept you on the right track, that were there when you needed them. And, and, And so I've really started to move more into this whole area of how do we take um, people that want to help and give them the skills they need to be more effective? And, and I'll, I could talk a little more about that later. But 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 that's kind of how I've, I've gotten to where I did with the mentoring project. And we also, over the years, have done a lot of work with the Ohio Department of Youth Services. And, and they, had a, they have a big interest in mentoring programs. And, and so they also were interested in us studying them and 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 uh, learning more about uh, what what their effects were. So thanks, Ed. And you know, it sounds like you've done a lot of great work on the ground with programs over the years, and and similar to a lot of the mentoring work that that we do through our center. Before we get into the the OJJDP study that we're going to talk about today, I wanted to spend a minute just talking about kind of the research broadly and and what we know about preventing juvenile delinquency in general, um, particularly for youth have already become involved or, or may actually, you know, even be incarcerated, you know, because now that work has shifted from prevention and kind of early, you know, interventions to really preventing recidivism and preventing young people from getting deeper into the, the system. What does the research say about what's effective even outside of just mentoring? What is effective in general in preventing recidivism in young people, and, and when you look at mentoring, do you see those types of things in place? Well, that's a great question, Mike. My work has followed what's called the R and R model: risk, need, and responsivity. This this is work that was kind of first uh, developed by uh, Don Andrews and Jim Bonta and Paul Jandreau and some others, and. It really, when you look at that body of research, it probably has the, the the strongest evidence behind it, and and it's really a set of principles, and 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 so risk is a principle that that essentially says, you know, we if you want to reduce recidivism, you focus on on those most likely to recidivate. Um, you know, you, you're not going to get you're not going to reduce recidivism if you're focusing on a low risk group where only 10% are failing, right? And and so the, the first premise is let's identify those youth that really are or have a likelihood they're going to continue that, you know, that behavior. Uh, it also tells us though that they need the most intensive interventions. And this is an area where I think we have we've really fallen short over the years. Uh, my experience evaluating programs is that Despite what we say, the vast majority are one size fits all. Uh, everybody pretty much gets the same thing. 
And, and, and so what the risk principle is telling us is that once we identify higher risk youth, we have to give them intensive interventions, which means we have to spend more time with them. We have to make sure they practice the skills more. We, we, we have to increase the dosage. And, and we've done a little bit of research in that area, both adult and juvenile. And, it, and it's very clear that when we increase that dosage for, for higher risk, we get a much stronger effect. The, the, the other aspect of the risk principle is that we can do harm. And so when we take low-risk individuals and put them in intensive interventions, we can do two things. One, we can expose them to high risk, which is, as we all know as parents, we never want to do. And second, we can disrupt what makes them low-risk. So if you think about it, if, if, if the youth in your neighborhood is sent to detention home for a couple weeks... When, when they get out, you don't tell your son or daughter to go down and see how they're doing. You do just the opposite. You say, I don't want you hanging around with them. So we've not only, not only have they been exposed to higher risk, the, 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 the youth that were, were uh, in detention, but now we've kind of cut them off from, from pro-social networks. And, and, and so the, the, the risk principle is, I think the first thing it says is let's not do any harm. And then let's identify the kids that need the most help and, and make sure they're getting it. The, the need principle of, of the R&R model is, is essentially that you, we want to target what we call criminogenic needs. And, and, and so everybody has needs. We all have a need to, to be healthy or to be loved or to, you know, uh, feel good about ourselves. But many of those aren't correlated with delinquent behavior. And, and, and so when we look at the what we call the, the, the stronger correlates of criminal behavior and delinquent behavior, what do we see? Well, we see attitudes, we see peer associations, substance abuse, lack of support at home, poor discipline, could be abuse. We see some personality traits like being a risk taker, being impulsive, not having good problem solving skills. Uh, lack of, of, of sober leisure activities. These are our, our needs that we, we call them criminogenic, which is just a fancy way to say a dynamic risk factor. Right? There are risk factors that are, 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 there are things that are risk factors that we can't change. And so if your father's in prison, that might help explain why you're sitting here. The problem is I can't really change it. There's nothing I can do about it. But if you're, if you're impulsive or you're not going to school or you're hanging around with kids that get in trouble, those are more dynamic. We can focus on them. We can help a youth make better decisions. And so the need principle essentially says, let's identify those criminogenic areas and, and target them for change. Responsivity, there's, there's two elements to responsivity. There's what we call general responsivity and specific responsivity. Uh, specific responsivity essentially says that, that, that there are certain barriers that people have. We learn differently. And, and, and so if we want to get the most out of a correctional or a juvenile justice intervention, we need to identify those responsivity factors and, and, and make sure that we're taking them into consideration. They can include things like race, for example. If, if you don't think that I understand where you're coming from, 
you may be less likely to, to pay attention. Gender, uh, mental illness, uh, maturity, motivation, literacy, second language, uh, English as a second language, right? And, and so uh, parental support for interventions. And so the, the specific responsivity basically says that we need to we need to identify these strengths and barriers that a youth may have and develop a strategy to help address them. General responsivity essentially says that most most people respond to social learning and, and cognitive behavioral kind of interventions uh, that use behavioral approaches. Behavioral approaches have some attributes. They're, they focus on current risk factors, and they're very action-oriented. And, and by that, what I mean is the youth are actively engaged in learning new skills and new ways to behave. It's being modeled for them by pro-social people. It's being reinforced properly. And, and so the R&R model essentially says, let's, you know, let's target higher risk, let's target criminogenic risk factors, and let's provide programming and treatment in a way that's responsive and that uses the, the best theories we have about how we learn uh, new behavior. And, and kind of the final element of it that's all wrapped up in it is you have to do it all pretty well. You have to have some fidelity in your delivery of, uh, of the programming. So most of my work has really focused on the R&R model. Now, your question is, one of your, part of your question was, does mentoring programs incorporate this? Uh, I, I think this is a I think they fall short in, in, in several areas. One is in terms of the risk principle. I think mentoring programs often serve a wide range of risk, low risk, moderate risk, high risk kids. Uh, I don't think they expose them to each other, but I, uh, th there really aren't a lot of exclusionary criteria. I think most mentors understand that they want to target some of these behaviors. The question is, how do you do it? And, and if you're doing it mainly through talk therapy or, you know, just kind of I'll be your friend, that really isn't a very effective way to, to change behavior. And, and, and let me say that I think it's important for everybody to understand it's not easy to change someone else's behavior. It's hard to change our own behavior. Uh, let alone someone else's. And, and, and so I, I think one of the issues with mentoring, I'm not sure we've always given mentors the tools and the skills they need to be as effective as they can. Where I think mentoring programs do hit the mark is their attempt to use structured social learning. In other words, the mentor is, is, can be the role model. They can, they can teach the youth the appropriate ways to behave and to act, right? It's a myth that they don't have skills. Many, many delinquents have skills. They have a lot of skills. Uh, they're just not pro-social skills. You know, they're skilled at skipping school or using drugs or, or, or other kind of behavior that gets them into trouble. We want to teach them the pro-social alternative. And if your only role model is yourself, it's pretty hard to do that. And, and so I think mentoring has the ability, because of the social learning model, to, to be more effective than it is. But, but I do think they fall short on, in, in terms of uh, meeting some of the principles that have been identified with uh, the R&R. &R. Thank you, Ed. And, you know, I heard a lot in there that I've heard 
researchers in the mentoring space starting to come around on on that notion a little bit. Gene Rhodes in particular is is on a bit of a kick these days around the fact that, you know, mentors are often not taught to apply kind of more rigorously studied intervention principles. You mentioned cognitive behavioral stuff. You know, she really feels like mentoring is a great context for the delivery of perhaps some other more rigorous things, some more purposeful things. And I, you know, I certainly see elements of what you described there. You know, I, I think mentoring programs try and go to those places, but I, I think your assessment's probably pretty accurate that for for these young people in particular that need something that's perhaps more intensive, more of a dosage, as you said, um, and something that draws on a lot of, you know, high-end skills. I mean, it's not easy to train a volunteer to deliver some of these things. Uh, I have a colleague who does motivational interviewing uh, as part of his program, and just trying to get the mentors to stick to the principles of just that one thing is is very challenging. Yeah, it's very challenging. It, you know, the challenge we see in the field is is implementation, and and I think it's no more is that more true than mentoring, where you are asking volunteers, you are asking people that give their time to this, and and so the, there are some real challenges. Well, thank you. I think that's great background for what we're going to talk about on the rest of this uh, episode, which is the study that you completed, I, I believe, last year for OJJDP. It was titled Mentoring Best Practices Research, Effectiveness of Juvenile Mentoring uh, Programs on Recidivism, uh, looking specifically at uh, young people in the state of Ohio. I'm hoping you can just kind of give our audience a, a brief overview of the design of the study in terms of the types of programs that were involved and some of the major questions you were hoping to answer. Okay. Yeah, happy to do so, Mike. And and you should know, I, I was the principal investigator, but the but the real work was done by uh, some of my uh, my associates, uh, Stephanie Derez, Carrie Sullivan were the lead researchers. Uh, Chris Sullivan and Sarah Manchek, who are on the faculty here, were also consultants on the project. So it was really a a, a team approach, uh, like most large studies involved a, a number of people and had a lot of moving parts. There, there were four major questions that w- we wanted to address with this study. The first was, are mentoring services effective in reducing delinquent and criminal re- reoffending? And did the impact of the services differ based on youth characteristics, things such as risk? The third question uh, was around the quality of the match between the mentor and the mentee and its uh, uh, impact on outcomes. And finally, something that I don't think has been done uh, much in the mentoring research is to look at the quality of the mentoring program and whether that led to different uh, differing outcomes. So to do a study with those research questions, we, we, we used a mixed method approach. So to answer the first two questions, which were really around outcome and, and factors, we used a quasi-experimental design. We had two samples. We had a youth uh, that were released from DYS. Ohio Department of uh, Youth Services has uh, three institutions. Youth are released on parole. So we had youth that were released on parole that received a mentor and youth that were released on parole that did not receive a mentor. And so we matched them on on a number of characteristics. Um, so those were our, that's our study and our, and our um, comparison group. 
and then we had uh, probation sites. Now, these are youth that, that had not been uh, placed in an institution, and, and, and so, uh, but the same model. We, they all had mentoring programs. We took youth that received mentoring, matched them to youth that did not receive mentoring. And, and so that was the basic design to answer the first two questions. For question three, we surveyed youth on the quality of the relationship as well as their overall satisfaction with the mentoring program. Uh, and, and to answer the last question, the quality question, we, we, we developed a tool years ago called the Correctional Program Checklist. And, and it's based on uh, essentially the, the R&R model and the principles of a, what we call the principles of effective intervention. For this study, we did a modified version. So we used uh, a number of items from the original CPC, and then we added items that followed uh, the research on effective juvenile programs and effective mentoring programs. So we did a, a literature review and said, okay, well, researchers have found this is important. So we included that. To do the CPC uh, mentoring, we went to every site and we watch what they do. We interview folks. We look at their, their materials and their files. And so every program got a score around their, basically their adherence to uh, uh, evidence-based practices. So those were the, that's the basic design. Um, we had a number of sites. Um, we started out with uh, uh, one site that ended up uh, dropping out of the study. So we had to add another site. Uh, anytime you do research, as you know, in the real world, you, you know, you have to deal with all the contingencies that occur that are out there. And so, you know, we, we, we were able to get data, I think, total sample over 570 youth uh, were in the study, so it was it was a it was a sufficient sample to do the study. We would have would have liked more sites, but you know you 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 do what you can do when you're out there in the field. Sure, and just so our audience understands, the programs that you were that were part of this are these like local nonprofit mentoring organizations that have partnered with the juvenile courts to get young people referred to them. Are they op operated by the, the courts themselves, or is it kind of a mix? Yeah, Ohio, we're kind of a home rule state. So every county has a juvenile court. And DYS, of course, as I said, they, 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 they uh, have parole. But they, they, they obtain funding through an OJJDP grant. And so a lot of the programs that we studied, in fact, all the programs that we studied were, were really offered through local providers most of them through funding from either the court or the state. And so it was a wide range of, of local providers in those jurisdictions that the courts uh, used or the state used. So the services weren't, the, the courts oversaw the programs, but it was a contract with various uh, nonprofits that operate in those jurisdictions. Great, thank you, that's, that's helpful. So I guess, you know, it sounds like a, a great design. You're able to kind of study this in different, you know, locations around the state so that you're not pinning all the findings on on one service provider. You get kind of a broad swath of, of what's happening in this work. So I guess let's let's dive into the findings. I'm kind of dying to know here, you know, were these programs effective in preventing 
recidivism, uh, or you know, for those who are on probation, did it keep them from reoffending? And and to the the second question you were asking, did that differ by their risk profile? Well, the simple answer is no. The programs uh, overall did not have uh, significant, did not lead to significant reductions in delinquent or subsequent delinquent or recidivism. Uh, they they may have had an impact on some youth, but it it overall was not significant and it did not differ by risk. So while the 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 different the the youth in different risk groups did fail at different rates, it was corresponding to the comparison group. So if the low risk treatment group failed it failed at ten percent, the low risk non treatment group failed it. 10%. And and if the high risk failed at 40%, the same thing there. So it really, uh, you know, the, the, there were, you know, there were a few nuggets here and there, but overall, we did not find any significant effect from the mentoring program. And, I, you know, we were obviously, anytime we do these studies, you know, we were, we're hoping to find positive results, but in this case, it, it it we did not find any. None of the sites or parole or probation had any uh, any significant effects. Well, yeah, you gotta you gotta call it as you see it, I suppose. Um, even if it's not kind of what you were hoping for. There's been some other research in mentoring that suggests that, you know, mentoring seems to be more effective when young people have either kind of individual risks that they're dealing with or environmental risk factors, you know, their neighborhood for, you know, that they live in, but not both at the same time. And I'm just wondering if in the risk data that you collected, whether you differentiated in any way around types of of risk and whether or or is it just cumulative that you were looking at kind of your overall risk profile well to assess risk every youth in ohio is assessed with the ohio youth assessment system it's actually a set of instruments that we developed here at the university of cincinnati and those instruments for example many of these youth would have been assessed with what we call the dispositional tool which is a a fairly uh, robust instrument that has a number of of what we call domains. Within some of those domains, there are some environmental factors, such as neighborhood. Most of the items, though, are related more to the individual factors. We didn't break them out, and I'm not sure we had we would have sufficient data to do that. But it's an interesting question. We we have not done that at this point. It may be something uh, we get a um, a doctoral student wants to do a dissertation, they can look at it. But but we we did not break out individual from environmental. And and I'm not sure, you know, we had a couple environmental. I'm not sure how many we had, uh, if we could really do, do it justice. Yeah, maybe there is an enterprising young student out there that wants to take that on. It would just be an interesting comparison, but you know, in in this case, it may may turn out that it wouldn't have made much difference depending on how you sliced that. Let's talk about the other two questions that you asked as part of this study. You looked at other factors that might explain how youth experienced this or or benefited from it. 
in looking over the report, it looks like the youth had good things to say about their relationships, but it looked like you also found some other areas where, you know, program characteristics played a role here. So could you talk a little bit about each of those? Yeah. You know, whenever you're trying to survey youth, especially, you know, kids, these are kids that, you know, A, they move around a lot and, you know, B, you have to track them down. You, you know, you, you, there are always some, some you know, gaps in the data. But overall, the youth were, sat for, I think, with regard to satisfaction, uh, was relatively high, but we also found an inverse relationship. The, the higher the satisfaction, the, the greater the likelihood of recidivism. And I, I can't fully explain it other than to say that with some adult studies where we've looked at the relationship between a probationer and, and a probation officer, we have often there been there is some evidence that sometimes the the the, the probationer will rate the, the the relationship higher than the officer does. So it, it you know they think they're getting more out of it than they actually are. So that may be one of the explanations. But with regard to program quality, you know again you know we only have so many sites, so it's not like we have a huge number of sites, but we did find the overall, the higher scoring programs on the CPC had the largest effect on difference in recidivism. The lowest, the low scoring, there was one low scoring program actually had the greatest increase in recidivism. But overall, the findings were not significant in part because we had too few sites to kind of draw any definitive conclusions. But when we look at those, site-by-site -site kind of reviews of characteristics, we did see some pretty big deficits uh, from the program. One, it's very clear most of them are not using research in designing their programs. Initial training of mentors was very, very lacking. Um, no exclusionary criteria for youth. So, you know, Pretty much anybody that wanted a mentor, they try to find them one. And they did not, none of the programs, as I recall, did a, uh, a satisfactory job in assessing responsivity. In other words, that you know, they, they didn't assess responsivity factors, those things that the, those barriers or those challenges that a youth might have. And as a result, then that means the mentor kind of has to figure it out. Right. If this is a low functioning kid or this is a kid that's not really motivated, it, that was left to them to kind of work through. And, 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 and so there was no real assessment. As a result, there was no real matching of mentors on responsivity. I'll give you an example. I, I'm not a patient person. I, I don't even consider patients a virtue. Right. So so I'm not I would not be a good match with someone who was a little bit uh, slower, you know, what didn't, you know, kind of needed more hand-holding. That's not a good match because I, I'm not, I don't have that temperament. I might be a better match with a kid that's more of a limit setter, somebody that pushes the envelope a little bit, right? You, on the other hand, you might be really patient. You're really good with, you know, working with, with kids <clears throat> that are less mature. You're a better match. So without assessing responsivity, it's hard to match 
uh, mentor to mentee. So that was a, that was missing. And then the, the, the biggest area uh, around the programs that we found deficient was that they really weren't training their staff on the use of behavioral change techniques. And here we're talking about how to use effective reinforcement, how to use effective disapproval, uh, how to how to a model uh, anti-criminal modeling, how to do structured skill building, how to teach a youth problem solving techniques. We found pretty much across the board that that these that these techniques were not part of the training of mentors, and 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 these and other research we find are very critical to to the change process. The other thing we found, and you know, related to it is. You know, a lot of them didn't have completion criteria. It was somewhat subjective. Yeah, let's let's talk about that a little bit in terms of whether these matches stuck around, you know, and, and kind of completed the the duration that they were supposed to be meeting. And I think I was kind of shocked to see in the report that I think only about 10% of, of each of the groups, you know, parolees and, and youth on probation completed their match in, in terms of the length that they were supposed to meet for and you know, 10% is an awfully low number. Now, you mentioned these are fairly mobile young people, with a lot you know, going on, but um, you did find, right, that the ones that completed it did have lower rates. So um, maybe there's a, if you can get them to stick with it and <laughs> kind of get the dosage you're shooting for, maybe, maybe this does work a little better than it, it seems. Well, this is true. Uh, first of all, I may say it, most research and certainly other studies we've done do show that those that finish a program are much more likely to, to be successful. But but I, I think we have to look at mentoring a little differently because, you know, we're labeling it a program, but it's really about a relationship. And and so if you think about your own mentor, the people that, that were important in your life that you considered your mentor, whether they did or not, usually that's a relationship. And over time, we might come to depend on them less, but usually the lessons kind of stay with us. So, so I think one thing we have to be clear about is we kind of label this a mentoring program, but it's really about trying to get these youth in a relationship with somebody to help guide them. Uh, because they didn't define it very well, it, it oftentimes it just kind of, you know, evaporated. So... I'm not sure we can always apply that, you know, the the same principle, the same label to a a mentoring relationship as we can to, you know, some kind of formal structured, you do 10 weeks and you're done kind of program. But obviously, if if they connect with the mentor and there's somebody they feel they can go to, then they have stronger effects. The the other thing, Mike, let me say this, I, I think we have to understand that these mentoring, these court mentoring programs are somewhat contrived. That is, my guess you is you had mentors, I had mentors, and it wasn't like someone said, okay, this person's going to be your mentor, right? And, and, and so part of it is this kind of this natural process that happens, and now we're trying to take that and put some structure around it and say, okay, here's your mentor. This guy's gonna gonna take you out and gonna teach you some things. And and so it's it's a different kind of process than I think what occurs more naturally in our lives. 
Yeah, very much so. And I think one of the trends that I'm seeing in our field is a a move towards models that take what's called a youth-initiated approach, where they try and bridge those two worlds of, you know, young people that, you know, they already know people that would be appropriate role models and, and asking them to, you know, step up a little bit more and take on a bit of a formal role. So you're not starting from zero with, here's Bill, he's your new mentor. And it's, it's kind of weird artificial relationship. And, and some of the work that our, our affiliate in, in Nebraska is doing is really testing this with youth who are system involved and seeing if that can't get them a mentor that is perhaps from their community that they would see more often. So, you know, once again, thinking about that kind of dosage and duration piece, but also just that you don't have to go through these hurdles of getting to know each other and and maybe we're not as compatible as we thought and you know some of those personality things that you mentioned earlier around matching i think the hope is that you know those matches might get off on a, a better foot um, so that's a trend that hopefully i know there's some research happening around what's happening uh, there in nebraska and, and other places around the country so i'm i'm hopeful that maybe that's a, a path forward that alleviates some of the issues that you found in in this study yes and and we're doing some of that similar work there, there was a study done a few years ago pennsylvania did a study of parolees adult parolees uh men and women who had come out of parole and 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 they looked at which ones were successful and which ones weren't and one of the things they found that stuck with me was that, the, 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 that those that were successful, almost all of them said they had someone they could go to. They didn't always call them a mentor, but it was somebody in their life that, that was important to them. And, and so I, I got this idea. We've been doing a lot of work around the country, uh, training probation and parole officers on, on how to work differently with with both youth and adult and and so we're we're actually testing it now we call it effective practices for community support for influencers and, and so the idea is let's ask work with the youth to identify their influencers it can be it you know it it can be a, a grandma it can be an uncle it can be a teacher it can be a coach and and let's let's train them on some of these skills. So it's A, it, you don't have to worry as much about the relationship because they already have a relationship. And, and you can build this pro-social network around the youth, increase the dosage, right? And, and, and so you're able to accomplish a lot of goals. Uh, and, and it kind of moves beyond this traditional artificial kind of mentoring uh, program. And, and and so in other words, it's it's just, you know, let's let's find out who they are. Let's get them involved. I'll tell you an interesting story. We, we're, we're piloting it in a site in Ohio at a juvenile court. And when we went to meet with them, the, the police were in, in as part of the group. And when we got done, the law enforcement officers said, well, we want to be trained. And, and I said, well, why do you want to be trained? And they said, well, we have resource officers in the school. We do after-school programs with kids, and we don't know what to do with them. And we'd like some of these skills. And, and, and when I heard that, I thought, you know what? I, we're on the right track here. I mean, if we can get these kind of folks that are in the youth's lives and, and show them how to help them a little more effectively, I, I think we can, we can increase our effects pretty dramatically from 
we'll call them mentoring programs, but but basically programs where we're we're hooking kids up with uh, with, with folks that want to help them and showing them how. Yeah, well, you're putting a big smile on my face, Ed, because our work at Mentor over the last few years has done a lot of similar things. We were starting to get, you know, feedback from youth sports coaches, teachers, uh, as you noted, you know, police that have a lot of contact with young people, healthcare workers uh, that interact with young people. And so, yeah, we've developed a series of trainings that, you know, kind of teach them some of these deeper relationship skills, teach them how to, you know, what's the right thing to do or say in a particular moment when a young person comes to them with a, a problem or a challenging situation. And so I, I find it fascinating that from, you know, kind of the pure mentoring side of things in my organization, and then for you from kind of this, you know, law enforcement correctional, you know, kind of background, we're all arriving at the same place, which is building up. Yeah. We're getting yeah. So stuff. that's great. And yeah. maybe there's a future collaboration there that we can maybe we'll partner. There you go. I like <laughs> it. I like it. So I want to end, I want to end with one last question and just, you know, kind of quickly get a kind of a summative statement from you here. It feels like maybe this wasn't the best news that OJJDP or others you know, hoping to see a strong connection between mentoring and, and recidivism would have been hoping for here. So I guess in your opinion, you know, is this even bad news or is this just a call to be more intentional in the work that programs are doing with these young people? Uh, I don't think it's bad news. I think it's how we build knowledge. You know, even if, even if we would have found that, you know, there was an effect, that doesn't mean a program in Iowa or Nebraska or or Florida is going to be effective. I mean, we, we learn by studying what works and what doesn't work by trying to to, to translate it into into practice. And, and 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 so anytime we do studies like this, we are going to find not everything's working as well as as we expect or would hope for. But that doesn't mean we don't learn something from it. And and we take those lessons and as you said, the kind of work that, that you're doing and that we're doing, it's, it's not the the concept. It's it's how do we how do we how do we put this into a package that we can we can implement, train people, and and we know that you know, intuitively we know that mentoring is something we want young people to have, right? Because again, most of us had had mentors. We just need to figure out how to how, how to how to make it more effective and and uh, take some of the artificiality out of it, make it a little more real. So I, I'm not disappointed at all by by the study and the fact that we assessed these programs, which is something that hasn't been done before. Uh, we've identified, and I should say this: we also identified the things they were doing well programmatically. And, and, and that there was also a number of items they tend to do very well. I don't want to make it sound like everything they were doing wasn't uh, wasn't research related. So but but what do we do? Well, when we find there's some consistency in findings, in other words, no program was doing this well. Now we have some direction. Right. So so I, I'm not uh, I'm not uh, discouraged at all. Well, thank you. And I appreciate your perspective around that. And in my experience, I've found that OJJDP as an agency is also, you know, takes that kind of approach of, you know, we're just learning more, right? And there's always more that we can learn and, and we don't view it in a black and white, you know, this works, this definitively doesn't work. And, and I agree with you. I think there's little value in looking at things through that 
black and white of a lens. So I appreciate the discussion here. It's a great uh, report. We'll provide a link to it along with the recording here so that our audience can go dive in and and see the work that you and your your team did there. And just a reminder to our audience that we have more episodes of this podcast coming up in 2018. So keep an eye on our website for new recordings. And as always, if you want to make improvements in your program or deal with the challenge that you're facing in your mentoring services, the NMRC offers free technical assistance and consultation nationwide. All you need to do is request it through the website and we'll hook you up with the expertise you need. So on behalf of OGJDP and the National Mentoring Resource Center, uh, thank you again, Ed, for joining us today. It was a great conversation. And I just encourage our audience to remember that you know research may sometimes seem definitive, but I think we decide what's meaningful in that work through dialogue just like this and by keeping open hearts and minds. So we'll see you next time on Reflections on Research.